to the Good Trash Honor Cast, where we gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. We're working through our Growing Up Summer uh, series right now, and so we are doing coming-of-age films, and this week's film is The Perks of Being a Wallflower, a documentary about the wallflowers. Uh, 50% off on all uh, clearance items. Indeed, indeed. We'll find much about um, the papering of walls with papers with flowers upon them. It's a shining documentary. It- <laughs> Or maybe something else. So we're going to talk about that. But before we get into that, we need to identify these voices speaking to your brain. Who are you? Hi, I'm Arthur Gordon, and Dalton is never tossing that salad. <laughs> I, got, I can't even react. <laughs> to, my, good, to my left, sir, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and Chapter 1, Surviving Your Fascist Shop Teacher. Oh, this sounds important. <laughs> we should keep reading. <laughs> my name is Dustin Sells, and welcome to the island of misfit toys. Nobody Dang, won't. I really thought we were going to go three for three on that Ezra Miller line. Yes. Oh, sorry. A, good, a good line, no. A good line. Uh, you know, Charlie in the Box, I, I thought that immediately when she said that because he's Charlie. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, nobody wants a Charlie in the Box. I want a Charlie in the Box. That's, that's one of the misfit toys. So, so yeah, this does not have anything to do with the band The Wallflowers or uh, Wallpaper. Uh, it's uh, the adaptation of Stephen Chabosky's. Uh, is that how you say his last name? I don't know. Chabosky. Thank you. Stephen Chabosky's. Uh, I made that up. I don't I know. I think it. that's actually right. That uh, sounds good. Anyway, he's not going to listen. It's the he definitely is not. It's the adaptation of Steve's uh, very popular coming of age novel that he also got to write and direct. Hey, Steve, tweet us at me and let me know the phonetic pronunciation of your last name. And did a very good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, spoilers on how we feel about this movie. He kind of crushed it. Rarely do you see this where the novelist writes his own screenplay and directs, I, and it's not a train wreck. I can only think of one. I know King's done some. I think Crichton did one or two. Well, right? King hasn't directed, has he? I thought he had. I think he yeah, he directed Maximum Overdrive, yeah. but that wasn't an adaptation. It, it was original screenplay. You're yeah. right. I, I mean, Jillian Flynn obviously wrote the screenplay for Gone Girl, but Fincher directed. You're right. I mean, you would assume that that level of involvement in the adaptation would lead to some overindulgences and stuff. Right. But I mean, uh, the only exception I can think of is Clive Barker doing uh, Hellraiser. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. A movie that you guys like a lot more than I do. Well, uh, yeah. well, you know, some people can you know have good taste, and other people can be wrong. Yeah, and, and that would be me. And you two like a dipshit ass movie from nineteen eighty, whatever. All right. So, um, in case you're tuning, <laughs> it's in, a fine film. You may not know what to expect. At least we don't um, revisit Fight Club every three weeks. Look, we've been doing this show long enough that my opinion on that movie has evolved a lot. We, <laughs> I you, think it's we. I was I was what twenty two when we started this show. Give me some slack. Wow, way to date it. God, I know, right? <laughs> oh, Dustin, did you want to host the show? Yes. Okay, uh, go ahead. You really might not know what to expect if you're tuning in for the first time from our banter. So let me tell you what kind of show you are tuned into here at the Murder Good Mystery. Tra- <laughs> <laughs> at the Good Trash. It's not going to be a mystery. It's going to happen live on air. Uh, uh, yeah, so right. what happens here on the Good Trash genre <laughs> cast is that we take films that you wouldn't normally discuss in a film studies course and apply rigorous analysis there, too. It's not a review show. It is an analysis show. Now, there will be some reviews to give you an idea of our, our tastes pertaining to the film, um, but that will be remaining spoiler-free. 
Uh, Dustin, what happens after that? After the spoiler-free section, we play a game which is Spoiler Light, in which there may be a mild spoiler of this film or other films in its orbit. Perhaps we might give away what the mystery track is in our particular gameplay this week. Uh, but then we move on into our analysis section. That's when we get down to business. There's music that says that. And that's how you know we've gotten down to business. And when it's business time, all spoiler bets are off. We're not using any spoiler protection whatsoever during business time. I had to give uh, – I felt really bad for stealing the, the the show pitch from him. Did you? Yeah, about halfway through I was like, that was mean. I'm going to give it back. But guys, before all of that – Uh huh. There must be a synopsis. Oh, my goodness. From the voice of the cinema. Oh, that's you. Yeah, you missed that, didn't you? Myself. You, you know what, Dustin? You're right. It is harder than it looks. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, um, without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema, let's hear that synopsis, which does indeed come first before those thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews. Go ahead. I always come first. An introvert freshman is taken under the wings of two seniors who welcome him to the real world. What? On MTV. <laughs> to the real world? Does he yes. get unplugged from <laughs> the, the Matrix? Okay. Did we watch the wrong movie? <laughs> he took the blue pill, right? Damn, IMDB. That's a great synopsis. <laughs> oh my you know what? He does have a psychedelic experience in he this does. movie. Uh, okay. You're really going to regret that haircut, Dalton. Well, you know, and his <laughs> such a funny on reality is somewhat tenuous also. So that's a that's a strange yeah. set of choices. It's a strange set of choices, but you know what? Not wholly inaccurate, I no, guess. I, I suppose. So without any further ado, we're going to keep using the word ado, apparently. Mr. Arthur Gordon, uh, let's hear that uh, thumbs up, thumbs down review from you. Do you like this movie? Why or why not? I do. I like it quite a bit. And I was kind of worried. I, I initially saw it in theaters. I think I saw it again after I got on DVD. I was a little hesitant to revisit it just because I didn't know if it'd hold up or, you know, come back to something like this after a few years that might sway your opinion or you might see it differently. And I think it holds up really well. I think it is, like we mentioned, I think Stephen Chbosky, um does a great job of adapting his work and putting it into a cinematic piece. And I was, I'm really impressed because, like we said, we don't see that very often. And I think he does a great job constructing that i think he's got a great eye uh there are some moments in this film where there are some beautiful stylistic flourishes particularly in the third act uh where some really cool stuff happens visually uh within the narrative and i don't want to go too far into that without spoiling it um but yeah he's got a great eye i think and he's he does a, a very good job of constructing all this and he's put together a really his team his uh, casting director they put together a really strong cast here um Emma Roberts, nope, Emma Watson. There you go. Here we are. Emma Watson, Mae Whitman, uh, Ezra Miller are all so good. Ezra Miller has kind of a coming out star turn here. This is kind of his first big movie. Yeah. Uh, he does a great job just killing it. Uh, he's got great charisma, uh, good good sense of humor, uh, good timing. Uh, I, I love his character, Patrick, quite a bit. Um, I really appreciate Miller's work here. Uh, but the whole cast is solid. It's a great cast of, of teenagers or young adults uh, playing teenagers, uh, and they all do a great job. And so I, I really like that. I think it still uh, packs a really heavy emotional punch. Uh, I, I know I speak for myself, and I think I speak for Dalton. I know I was teary-eyed by the end. I don't know about Dustin. Um, he's nodding his head. Yes, uh, it, it really does get you in the core, uh, especially when there's that turn in the third act, uh, which really takes it to a different place. Um, and I appreciate that about this because it, it starts out pretty standard high school drama, coming of age, whatever. Um, and we know there's something going on, but when we get that turn, I think it's handled really well. 
Um, and I appreciate it quite a bit. So, uh, yeah, I think it holds up. I'm really high on this one. Uh, I really enjoy uh, the perks of being a wallflower. Excellent choice. Excellent said, said words there, Mr. Arthur Gordon, whatever I'm trying to say. Dalton Stewart, say words about whether you like this movie or not and why or why not. Uh, yeah, much like Arthur, I was hesitant to revisit this. I'd only seen it uh, once before, shortly after it uh, got its home media release. And I had a really, really strong uh, emotional reaction to it. Uh, wept throughout the, the the end of the film the first time I saw it. And anytime I have that strong of a reaction to something um, on revisit, I am always a little bit hesitant. I'm wondering, uh, you know, when my, I, I get so emotional, you know, you kind of lose your ability to have that critical and analytical eye on something. You wonder how it's going to hold up. And I, I was delighted that, you know, six years later since its release, it is still a really strong movie. And as Arthur mentioned, uh, that is thanks in no small part to its really, really great cast. I mean, Logan Lerman uh, is an actor that I really, really like, and uh, I wish he got more work because I think he's really grounded. Uh, as Arthur mentioned, Ezra Miller has a, a fantastic kind of coming out party in this film. He had a, a really critically acclaimed role the year before. We'll talk about that later in the show. Um, but yeah, this was a pretty big movie. It was much bigger than the previous film he was in. Um, and again, Emma uh, Watson having her first big role post Harry Potter. Um, the accent work leaves a little to be desired at times, uh, God lover, but uh, that doesn't stop the performance from being really grounded. Uh, Mae Whitman's great here, too. I mean, the whole Johnny Simmons as Brad, I mean, even the supporting characters are, are all really fantastic. Um, Paul Rudd plays the role that he was born to play, great English teacher who changes your life. Uh, it wasn't Ant-Man. It was it was cool English teacher. That's, that's what he was born for. Um, it's really weird. Uh, I, I can only imagine, Arthur and I were talking off air about uh, Mae Whitman's uh, role in this NBC series, uh, Good Girls, uh, where she plays a single mom that helps rob a bank. Uh, and it's weird to watch Mae Whitman have gone from uh, teen roles and Arrested Development in this to playing a single mom. Probably similar to what it's like for Dustin to watch uh, Paul Rudd go from hot uh, stepbrother who's a freshman in college to English teacher. Uh, yeah, probably fair. Pretty similar, right? Yeah, very, very similar. But, uh, look, I can relate to it now, too, so I think I'm catching up with you is what I'm saying. Uh, but as Arthur mentioned, it's not just these great performances. It actually does have some visual flourish. Chabosky uh, kind of has a a sense of where the camera should be to elicit an emotional response. And I don't just mean to make you cry. I mean, to put you in the perspective of Charlie experiencing these things. Um, and that, that would kind of bring me to the one, I think negative point that I have, which is as a character, I like Charlie and I relate to him a lot. However, I think he's just too good. And I, I again, he, yeah, he's got his struggles and his problems I don't know that he has flaws, though. And I'm not saying every character needs to have a flaws. Some people are just good, decent people. Um, the only bad thing that Charlie does is a, a an overcorrection from not being emotionally honest, I guess. And we'll talk about that more in spoilers. And, and I think it's maybe one of the only aspects of the story. And I'm not the first person to criticize this aspect of Perks of Being a Wallflower. I think, viewer, your mileage is going to vary on you know when you watch this film, how much that bothers you. It doesn't bother me a whole lot, but it is something that's there, and it's kind of hard to ignore just how likable Charlie is. Um, because he is, you know, the most emotionally tuned-in 15-year-old to ever walk the face of the planet, I think. And again, his backstory kind of has some rationale and some reasoning why he might be a little bit more plugged in and tuned in to empathy than your average teen. But there are times where it's like, 
damn, this kid is really well-rounded as a, as a human being. Um, so he kind of comes across as a uh, emotionally uh, decent teen superhero. But other than that, um, I, I find all, I have a hard time finding any flaws here. Uh, I mean, there, there, it's, it's a great depiction of teenhood. Um, it, it uses its early 90s setting um, as more window dressing than anything. It doesn't get too wrapped up in, you know, nostalgia or cultural context. I mean, yeah, that, those things are there for sure, but it kind of allows that to sit in the back, and really the only time you notice it is the fact that nobody's using the Internet or has a cell phone. Uh, I mean, I, I would definitely not assume that every teen's life is the same, especially with uh, kids uh, the age of these leads uh, right now who grew up with uh, Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat. I mean, that's its whole own bag of nightmares, I'm sure. But uh, there is a pretty good – what's the best way to put this? Um, I think there is service paid to teen angst and teen pain that doesn't discount it, that that really appreciates it and values it as much as adult pain. And I think that's really cool. And that, that that's it. That's what I got for you. All right. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I will see your Charlie criticism, and I will raise you the rest of the dramatis personae. Um, I like the movie. I want to say that at the outset. But I do find, and this is sort of a typical criticism, the characters to be too thoughtful. They're a little too adult. Too too grown up. Or, or at other times, just a little bit too shallow. That it, it, it's just more complex than that, and it's it's too it's very difficult to do this with a teen film anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, this happens all the time. No one is as cool as the people in a Quentin Tarantino movie, you know. For instance, for sure. Right. I mean, so I mean, there's always the the way in which they always think of the right thing, and they always because somebody yeah. in a room sat at a typewriter and thought for hours about what to say next, as opposed to the lickety split that we have in a traditional conversation and so when it happens with teenagers who are overwhelmingly silent awkward and un inarticulate in in expressing their feelings or even being able to identify them in the first place shit i'm order, almost 30 and i still feel that way in order to articulate them there is a, a sense in which that does sort of take you back but if you go ahead and go with it and you go with it that this is just a thoughtful bunch of teenagers or it is a uh, teenagers who in hindsight can now ascribe to those moments and sort of fill in the gaps, mm-hmm. and, which is sort of the, the mental exercise I go through when I watch pretty much any of these movies is I just say, OK, this is remembrance. This is not what happened. This is not how it happened. This is how you remember it happening. And that's OK. And so but, but you have to sort of do that work to give it a pass. And this movie is as guilty as any. For that, I would say, and um, I maybe, think it's a fair criticism, though, of not just this film, but really all film, regardless yeah, of Juno is, is a movie I think about a lot. Nobody talks like that. I mean, but again, uh, you pointing out that you know nobody talks like Tarantino characters. It's true. All dialogue is stylized to some extent. It's just more noticeable when it's teens, right? Because again, I mean, I remember being a teenager, and uh, I thought I was very clever. Y- yeah. Well, yes. And yeah. you weren't. I know. No. no, I was not. And, and nor was I. And, no, I've and, listened to old episodes of this show. I wasn't clever in my early twenties. <laughs> and 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 so that's that's you know just one of those sort of realism moments. But if you if you if you let that aside, it is well performed and it is an excellent exploration as an adult looking back at teenagehood at some of those transition moments and realizing what you thought and felt the the heart sickness that goes with it the sort of struggling with emotion and what ends up being a struggle with trauma uh later on in the film to avoid spores we'll not get any further into that right now it does it does a very very good job um i also want to say that i love the uh, cast they're great but i also want to 
point out the supporting cast. Paul Rudd is best superhero performance is not Ant Man. He is a superhero in this movie, he's and good. he's an English teacher because English teachers are superheroes. But correct, I digress. Well, I had a couple of history teachers that I would throw in that category too. But yeah, well, I mean they can join humanities yeah. teachers. The, are. Well, yeah, well, history teachers are like you know. They're like uh, what's his name, Legolas, um, Orlando Bloom. No, the that's who plays Legolas. I know, but I'm I'm talking about actual superheroes. The guy with the bows and arrows, Elf. Elf. No, and in, in the Avengers. Hawkeye. Oh, Hawkeye. Hawkeye. <laughs> Come on, Legolas. Well, like yeah, the Legolas okay. of the Avengers. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, you're doing the Tony Stark joke. That's yeah, a, I, you know what? Calling history teachers the Hawkeye of high school <laughs> teachers is really fucking good. That's a good bit. And if you're not laughing right now, you're depriving yourself of joy. That's a funny bit. <laughs> Whoo. Anyway, so yeah, they could be they, they they could play, but the real the real work happens with the English guys <laughs> and ladies, and the more often ladies, which is good. No, yeah, all of my great English teachers were ladies, but nonetheless, uh, that is excellent. So Paul Rudd does a great job. Tom Savini as the shop teacher. That's so get, fun. So a fun. Give me cameo. some love to Tom Savini, and I like Dylan McDermott and his dad. He, him, and uh, Kate Walsh both crush. I mean, they yeah. both only have about six lines, but yeah, they both they nail their parent that lines. care. That distance, but also yeah. that uh, that that sort of smoking apathy that goes on as well. It's like I I don't care about some of the stuff. I care deeply about you, but there are particulars that I don't even I wouldn't begin to understand, and I also don't want to put out the effort. Yeah, and, and you sort of get that sense. The exchange of Dad, can I have twenty dollars? Thirty dollars? What do you need twenty dollars for? I'm not going to give you ten dollars. Yes. And then he gives him fifty. Yeah, I've I've had that exchange with my dad, <laughs> and it was so I was just like. Damn, I know this moment. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's a great Steve Jabosky like wrote the shit out of that. Yeah, that, that moment it's just perfect. Like, captures asking your parents for money in such a beautiful way. And so it does all those things right. Yeah. And and so and again, very well shot. Jabosky does a really surprising good job. And uh, and I don't know why I would expect nothing different from him, but just because he's a writer, I just assume he doesn't know anything about a camera. But I would be wrong. Yeah. And he did a great job and did a great job of visually telling the story. And so. So, yeah, uh, it's a movie I really, really like a lot, except for the things that I don't like about these movies in general. And so, you know, that's that's okay because it is what it is. And as what it is, it is a uh, it's a standout. So that is my review there of that film. We are done talking about this. Um, Dalton, I'll let you do your job now, and I won't do it for you, uh, in which you talk about social media. I will indeed, Dustin, tell the listener how they can hitch their uh, horse to the wagon that's pulling us all straight to hell. It is time for Social Media Corner. Uh, listener, if you want to get involved in what we are doing here, I would advise you not to. Uh, the internet is dark <laughs> and full of terrors and is best Just left Just turn alone. the show off now. Go outside. Yeah. Thanks for the last 20 minutes of your life. We but... appreciate the download. The numbers are already there. You can you know, go play I don't know, softball or whatever you do. Uh, but if you do want to wade into the internet, the best way to find us is on Twitter. It's where we're most active. That's at good underscore trash. And that is the place to go for all things good trash media, not just this, our flagship show, the Good Trash Genre Cast, but also info on the Praise Down with Heath and Alex, which is a delightful podcast that you should also check out if you're not already listening to it. Uh, it's also the place to go for news on things like uh, my hot takes from a hot car discussion of Mission Impossible Fallout with our very own Frightful Film, Kirsten Thurkelson. That's a Patreon uh, patron exclusive bonus for you. Uh, but you can also see things like when we show up on other podcasts, like when I showed up on the Cinematic Schematic, the podcast from the Cinematropolis.com, hosted by our very own uh, alumnus, Caleb Masters. We had a great talk about uh, 
uh, Fallout. Um, if you're thinking, now, Dalton, why in the shit would I give you guys money to get Patreon content uh, when I can go listen to you and Caleb talk about it for free? I would say, good point. Uh, which is where I would counter, Kirsten was with me in the car, and look, she's usually much cleverer than I am. So that's the argument. Also, I tried my best to say different things uh, in that, that patron-exclusive uh, uh, content versus what I said on the podcast with Caleb. But again, that's going to be at good underscore trash to stay tuned to all that news. We're also on uh, Facebook.com, which uh, just lost a whole shitload of money. Um, and that's kind of funny to me. Um, now, I guess credit is due. I spend a lot of time on this show being mean to Mark Zuckerberg, and I'm not going to stop doing that. But I will give credit that the reason he lost money is because he said they're about to become unprofitable because they're committing to security and privacy. And you know what? Too fucking late, you dumb dumb. Uh, but I guess at least he's trying to do better. We're on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash GTM. We're also on Instagram. Arthur, what is that account? Uh, you can find us Good Trash Media on Instagram. I'm going to remember that one of these days. Probably not. I don't no. expect you to. No, I know you don't. That's why I'm always ready to throw to you. Uh, finally, if you really do uh, want to be part of this, as I've already mentioned, that we've got the Patreon uh, account. That is a great way to help us keep the lights on. Um, for a few bucks a month, you can get all kinds of fun bonus content that we do over there. That's patreon.com forward slash GTM. If you don't have the money lying around to help us financially, not a big deal. We totally get it. Uh, you can go over to iTunes, Stitcher, however you put this podcast in your device. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the show that way. Uh, and on the note of Patreon, I do need to give a shout-out to our newest Patreon supporter. I meant to do it last time. Uh, but Lisa Latrinta, uh, I hope I pronounced that last name right, Lisa, um, is our newest Patreon. Um, and she was very, very excited to hear us talk about First Reformed. Thank you so She's much, a, Lisa. I believe kind of a newcomer to the show and got in on our horror stuff. And she found out we were going to be doing... Patreon bonus of First Reformed, and she got very excited, and so she signed up. And so thank you for that. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. God, yeah, I hope you don't want your money back. I don't yeah. know that we have She, she listened to it, and she really enjoyed the show. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Oh, that's good to oh, hear. Whew, I was so, really worried for a second. So, Lisa, thank you for that. And uh, for all of our Patreon sponsors, thank you. Uh, you help us keep the show running, and we are very appreciative of that. It, it means more to us than you could ever possibly know. And if rating, reviewing, and subscribing and giving money are both more than you could possibly fathom doing, um, I would recommend you do what uh, we've tried to do lately, and I would say tell somebody you actually know and like and care about to their face about the show. It's really probably the best way to spread the word and increase, um, you know, just knowledge about what we're doing here. I mean, we don't really care about the money. Uh, if we cared about the money, we wouldn't be doing this. We Correct. put more money into this show than we make from it, I assure you. For sure. Uh, but we do care about trying to make people have at least more thoughtful and informed discussions about film. So uh, if that is important to you, too, I would encourage you to tell somebody you care about the show, and maybe they'll get into it. Hey, Arthur. Truth or dare? I pick... Well, that's, who are you talking to? Either one of you. Just somebody bite. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Truth. I thought you were looking at me. Who are you talking well, You know what I'm going to take. Okay, Dustin. Truth or dare? Well, you know what I'm going to take. Dare. I dare you to... Kiss the prettiest boy in the room, and then play the game. All right, ready? Here it comes. Of course he kissed the dog. <laughs> hey, Charlie's a pretty dog. That was a good out. I win. Time to play the game. Game. They got game, he 
got game, it might feel good, it might sound a little something, but fuck the game if it ain't saying nothing. And we're back, and this week's game is Make Your Own Mixtape. That's right, Make Your Own Mixtape, brought to you by the perks of being a wallflower. Perks of being a wallflower. No one makes mixtapes anymore because they have Spotify, but when Dustin, well, not Dustin, when Arthur and I were in high school, we made mix CDs. Dustin probably did make mixtapes. I made uh, mixtape mix tracks. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, you feel good about that? I do. That was good. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, we tried to... Watching uh, them Betamax. <laughs> We tried to get a good game going for you this week, and inspired by the wonderful uh, soundtrack from Perks of Being a Wallflower, uh, we strayed from the beaten path. We normally stick to movies for these games, but, uh, you know, we've tried to branch out lately. This is not the first time we've played a musical game, and uh, that's what we're going to do this week. Uh, Arthur, I'm going to kick to you. Hit it. All right. Starting off, my uh, my mix is, uh, I'm, I'm going to pick some music I probably would have listened to in high school, which is going to be really... Not what people might expect, uh, but the first one is going to be Otis Redding sitting on the dock of the bay. Oh, it's a good song! Uh, it's a great song. I love that song. It's very high school meditative, Arthur crushing it. Yeah, I well, I grew up. Listen, we might talk about this later, um, but yeah, I, uh, I, I think it's, it's a great meditative track. Uh, there's a lot of story behind the track itself and Otis Redding's life, kind of ending before the fi- the song was finished recording and that whole thing. Um, but it's just beautiful and it's very contemplative, and I, I love listening to it. And I think it is just a great track to just kind of roll around and listen to. So that's my first pick. Excellent first pick, Arthur. What's your first pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? So uh, like Arthur, I tried to stay true to uh, things that actually would have been mixes. I uh, would have been on mixes I listened to in high school, and I actually sat and racked my brain and made sure that all three of the songs that I have picked are were in fact featured on at least, if not at least one, if not more than a few mixes that I had in high school, either that I made or were given to me. We're going to start off with... Uh, Oh God! Uh, the the angstiest song on this list, and that is "Tear You Apart" by She Wants Revenge, which was a frequent fixture in mixtapes that I had in high mm-hmm. school. Um, really, uh, if you have never enjoyed She Wants Revenge, I don't think that they're around anymore. I think they their last records from like 2011. Yeah, sounds uh, about right. But uh, yeah, they were doing a real like uh, neo new wave kind of thing, a new new wave, uh, real gothy. I, I'm sure there's a more accurate genre. Uh, the genre is called awesome. Well, yeah, I, I knew Dustin would like this pick. Uh, yeah, no, I, I was uh, really, really into them in high school. It was the uh, sexiest, saddest music I'd been exposed to uh, because literally every song is about being horny or being sad. You know, being 16. It's weird when you become an adult and realize that all the people that were making music about being a teen were almost 30 years old kind of creeps you out a little bit when you stop to think about it too hard. But uh, that is my first pick, Tear You Apart, uh, which has been featured in a ton of soundtracks. You've probably heard it before. Awesome, awesome. I like that pick very much. I'm gonna, my first pick is a song no one's ever heard. I'm sure of it. It is a song called The Banality of Evil by um, a band called Nine Horses. David Sylvian. I've heard uh, of the band. Uh, famous, uh, was a lead singer of the band Asia in the 80s, a new wave band. He has continued to do music on his own. Banality of Evil is featured on the Jim Carrey film experiment called The Number 23. So is Tear You Apart by She Wants Revenge. That's true. Yep. And so it definitely fits that same soundtrack. Banality of Evil is a great track. And uh, you can either listen to the original uh, recording of it or the Burnt Friedman remix um, 
Um, but I'll I'll let, I'll leave that to you, dear listener, to select. But it's a great little track, and it's just it's it's good driving music. Now, Dustin, was this actually featured on a high school mix of yours, or is this no. just something that still would have been in your no, wheelhouse? I, was, I, I wasn't listening to good music in high school. I was listening to what my friends listened to. Now that's totally fair. more on that anon. Yeah, we will definitely get there. So no, this would not have been included in that. But that is my first selection. After the first selection comes the next selection. So Arthur, what is your number? Next is that pick? how that works? I believe I've been so. racking my brain for the last several months about how, how Dustin's works. sequencing works. My understanding is that he goes one and the next one, which is sequential. And then the number next? I believe after that is the final next. The number last. The number last. <laughs> Damn it. it. See, he's going to keep us on our toes forever. He is, he is a, 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 a conundrum wrapped in a puzzle, wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a riddle. Eaten up uh, by Noam Chomsky like a delicious snack. Mm. My second pick. <laughs> Come on. We all know I was a middle-class white male. Yep, yep. Who listened to one Marshall Mathers. Yeah, we all did. And my next pick is The Way That I Am. Oh, yeah. The, oh, man. Uh, talk song. about angst. A great A angst song. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. The, 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 the rip on... Uh, where were the parents at? Mm-hmm. Middle America. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's. Um, I, I just listened to it the other day. I found a. Uh, I was. We were coming back from uh, Missouri, and I was put on a 2000s hip hop <laughs> playlist, and it was on there. And I, yes, I turned it up and sang most of the lyrics. It's it's so. always fun to go revisit those uh, those early uh, Eminem tracks until you hit the first bit of homophobia, and then you yep. go, "Oh shit!" And it and comes then, quick. And, it, uh-huh, and then you hit the misogyny, and you go, "God damn!" Oh. Ah, yeah, it's crap. It's still good, but man, I listened to it a lot. It's, ooh, yeah. I did too, buddy. Yeah. Well, look, we were the prime target. We yeah. were the target demographic. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, we were. Uh, but yeah, I would definitely. There would be some Eminem on my mixtape, and it would probably be the way that I am. So yep. I like the. I like the beat's good. It's, it's a, got a great production. It, it's a fat beat, and it just man. Turn it up, my turn it up, my earphones. It makes you feel real vindicated about yeah. how alienated you feel from literally everyone. Yep. I dig it. Nice pick. Nice pick. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what's your number next pick? Uh, my next two picks are kind of in the same theme. I next had two picks. What? My next two picks. I'm I'm not going to tell you what the, the third one is. I'm oh. just, I'm, I'm, this uh, number system is, I can't it's getting keep out, track. It's getting out of hand. It's like, we're, it's like we're doing trigonometry on the side of a moving target. Um, this next two. Wait. Uh, oh, yes. Which Avenger is teaching math? Oh, shit. Okay. Is it Bruce Banner or Tony Stark? It's definitely Bruce Banner. How many math teachers have you seen lose their absolute shit? Because I can think of at least no, it's Hank McCoy's Beast. No, dude, it's definitely the Hulk. How many math teachers MCU. have you seen lose MCU Avengers? Uh, okay, I have seen more math teachers than I can. <laughs> I, literally every math teacher I ever had kick people out of class, almost excuse the entire class because I got so mad. Yeah, it's 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 the Hulk. So okay. the next two picks of mine are, are are Dancy and about wanting to dance with girls, uh, and are basically the same song because I had limited taste then, and I mean let's be honest, kind of still do now. Uh, the first one is going to be Fell in Love with a Girl by the White Stripes uh, from, what is that, White Blood Cells? Shoot, I forgot what record that's from. Uh, but anyway, it is Fell in Love with a Girl, their first huge single, uh, which came out a few years before I was in high school. But uh, I didn't learn about uh, the early aughts explosion of garage rock and uh, kind of uh, Nirvana-inspired alt music, uh, such as, uh, you know, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, uh, God, all, all those New York bands. Um the Strokes, they just did a, a had a book come out about that whole New York early aughts scene. Apparently, it's really good. But 
I didn't learn about that stuff until about six years later because I had very bad taste in music at junior high and I uh, was way behind. But that, God, that song was on a lot of mixes. There's there's a lot of white stripes on my uh, high school mixes, honestly. But that is the first one because it's all about uh, wanting to dance with girls, man. And uh, uh, it's funny. She doesn't. Uh, the some people don't consider it cheating. That's mm. uh, that's what that song's about. All right. I think I honestly don't know still. I, I couldn't tell you. I, shit, I don't think Jack White could tell you. Excellent pick, though. I like it very much. My number next pick is a Tom Waits song because I love Tom Waits. Of course it is. It's he is yeah, he's upgrading his musical taste. Yeah, uh, I would probably like recommend the entire Bone Machine album. But he is picking music that he listens to now that he wishes he no, was. He's picking I, music making, equivalently I, to the way these teenagers are talking in this film. Well, I'm picking a okay. mixtape that I'd make now. Okay, totally I, fair. I, I thought that was the game. No, Arthur, well, I mean, you can do it however you yeah, want. There, there are no rules. There are no rules. We make this up as we go. Arthur and I decided to try and, and make a high school mix. But, uh, uh, that we would do when we were in high school. And what? you're uh, not the first person I've said. It's okay. I like the mix you're making. Uh, you're not the first person. It is person the best I, of the mixes. It's obviously the best. Uh, I've heard Bone Machine is, like, one of the top three Tom Waits records. It's a good record. I like it a lot. Um, Dirt in the Ground is 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 an album uh, selection I would give you, uh, and it's it's about mortality, you know, and it, it's got this sort of a very very dirgy kind of uh, I don't know. Um, Working on the plantation kind of feel kind of to it, and it's just good stuff. Um, I, and the whole record's really really good. But um, I recommend Bone Machine in general and Dirt in the Ground in particular. Um, I'll recommend if you are of a religious bent um, and you want to spiritualize your Christian seasons, the season of Lent and Bone Machine go together like peas and carrots. Hmm. I would say that. But moving on to number last, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What if I could combine my love of hip-hop and rap with comedy, I might slip a little Weird Al Yankovic oh, onto this yeah. mixtape. Yeah, I know what song this is. With Amish Paradise. Oh. What were you thinking? I was thinking White Nerdy. No, it was before. You know, I was also, after my high school. Actually, that's true. That was when I was in high school. Gangster's yeah. Paradise is a song I entertained putting on my own mixtape. It's a yes, good song. It is a good song. They're both good. I also that's, thought you were going to do Lonely Island and then remembered that was yeah. when I was in high school. You were in college. Yes. Uh, Amish Paradise, it's just a blast. It's, it's so fun. fun. Um, it's timeless. Um, it will be played long after I'm dead, and I'll be appreciative of that fact. Can I tell you a Gangster's Paradise story? You can. Because literally four days ago, my son was, like, looping the Spotify hard through the Yankovic and listened to Amish Paradise. I'm like, do you know the actual song? He goes, no, I don't know the song. I go, oh, well, pull up Gangster's Paradise. Listen to Coolio. And so we listen to the song, and we're listening to the song, and I – said I knew the song, and I, and I said that I liked the song. And as we're doing I'm letting him listen to it. So one thing that's really annoying when you show somebody a new song is, like, if you sing along yeah. to the song and they can't hear it, I hate people who do that. By the way, if you do that, dear listener, stop it. I catch myself doing it every once in a while, and I every time I do it, I go, ah, damn it. I need, yeah. yeah, I get mad at myself. If you're exposing them to a new song, let them hear the song. But while we're doing it, I am mouthing all the words. Adorable. And Josiah was amazed. Because he just did not think that it would be possible that I would know the words, the song that I just told him that <laughs> he ought to be <laughs> listening to. Has your son ever seen you listen to hip-hop, though? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I don't know why he's surprised. I, I don't need it was, it was really baffling to me. I, I think the song was kind of cool, and he didn't expect me to know something cool. Well, children are dumb. That Well. They have dangerous minds. <laughs> I say drown them all. Moving on, what is your next selection? Uh, my final selection is yet another uh, 
dancey uh, rock band from the mid-aughts. Uh, it is part of that, what, third or fourth wave British invasion that we got, and it is the Arctic Monkeys. I bet you look good on the dance floor. <laughs> yeah, look, I listened to music that all sounded the same when I was 16 and 17. <laughs> oh. All the bands I liked sound exactly the same. If I had done this, it would have all been grunge songs. Yeah, it's totally fair. I mean, I was also listening to the Fratellis and, I mean, just a bunch of bands that sounded very yeah. similar. Uh, I still like some of those bands. Some of them are better than others. Uh, I think the Arctic Monkeys' uh, back half of their career has kind of been interesting. But, uh, yeah, it was a huge hit. Everybody heard it, um, and it made its way on a lot of mixtapes because it was a, a hit single that actually sounded kind of good. Um, and we don't get those that often. No. Uh, especially, I think, over the last 10 years. And really, I think that was the last. We talked about rock music a lot on Almost Famous. I feel like the 2000s were kind of the last gasp of, of rock and roll, like, not being an unmitigated shit show and all the good rock just became indie. Um, and even then, that's debatable. Uh, I have strong opinions about indie music that I also don't have enough knowledge to back up. But uh, nonetheless, I-, I did some very dangerous driving to that song that uh, I would not recommend. Um, yeah, it's it's just a hoot. It starts off strong. It starts off fast. It's got a good beat. It's got good riffs. Um, it's good for, for dancing. It's good for driving. And it was, uh, a song that I was always happy when it came on and was running late as I often was when I was 17. Awesome. I like that pick very, very much. My last adult pick, apparently, of a mixtape is uh, Johnny Cash's When the Man Comes Around. Noise. Yeah, I actually yeah. had that on a mix in high school. Noise. Yeah, it's a great song. And, I mean, for obvious reasons, yep. it's got the cash and it's got the religious themes and all that kind of stuff. So it's a song I like a lot. Uh, very, very quickly, just because I feel like I didn't play fair and play this game. If I were making a high school mix, I can do it real fast. Read it. Dead and Bloated by Stone Temple Pilots, to my ever-living shame, would definitely have been on there. Secondly, would have been Heart Shaped Box, to my great credit from Nirvana, and lastly, Black by Pearl Jam. That's what would have been on the mixtape. Yeah, noise. He, he was right. All grunge. It would have yep. been all grunge for yep. show. It didn't. Yeah, that, that was. And only the bands that broke out. Ah, uh, yeah, yep. yeah, for sure. He's not cool enough to have any Bikini Killer, La Tigre on there. No. Just uh, I wouldn't I, know him of the Love Bone. Uh, yeah, man, I, it's it sucks when you and we're. I, I guess now that we're exiting the game, we can transition into the the main part of the show. But I will say briefly. It really sucks when you look back on those high school years and realize you did know people that had good taste in music and you just weren't listening hard enough yes. to their recommendations. You know, yeah. and on that note, I think we'll just do exactly that as we get down to business. All right, and we are now back down to business, and that means all spoiler bets are off. First spoiler is the mystery track is David Bowie's Heroes. These kids don't Wait, know. I could have swore it was the Wallflowers. <laughs> um, Arthur From Godzilla 2000. Yeah. Arthur's a big fan of that, that Roland Emmerich soundtrack. Yes. Um Incorrect. Uh, but here is the thing that we were just talking about, is the way in which you live in a musical cocoon in high school. And so I, this is less analysis and more – and we've been – this particular series uh, marathon that we've been doing has been more personal in many ways, and I'm okay with continuing in that vein a little bit. So what I want to ask, first of all, is uh, – I know I've, I've already put some of my cards on the deck – Put my cards That's not the how table. the game is played, no, my take, friend. Taking them out of the deck and putting them on the table. <laughs> Don't uh, play poker with this man, uh, which uh, we should have figured out from the way he lists things sequentially. <laughs> <laughs> A royal setup. <laughs> Thank you. 
I've got a full flush. Um, so anyway, <laughs> you've already put your cards. You go to on prison the- for that. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fact. You've already put your cards on the table, Dustin. There was a lot of grunge happening yes. in your life in and, high school. But I want I want to talk a little bit about your cocoon. Okay. Uh, the cocoon that you lived in because <laughs> what I find is that teenagers, particularly, they they don't really have a musical aesthetic yet. They have a group of friends, and they decide to like what they like and to like it very hard. Mm-hmm. I begin with an illustration of my oldest son, the one who is going to be a freshman in high school next uh, this two months from now, uh, or a month from now. Good night. And so very much in the same position as young Charlie. And he is uh, hanging out with the theater crowd. Um, and I love seeing Charlie wearing that Jesus Christ Superstar. It's uh, very good. Uh, high school, you know, production yeah. shirt. That I love that fun. that high school performed Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, that's also, I like that. What very a badass much. high school! Yes, but uh, being into musicals, he's listened to a lot of musical theater soundtracks. He listens to the Hamilton soundtrack like all the time. He's very much uh, there's this the musical Jersey Boys, uh, not to be confused with Jersey Girl. And so he really likes Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons right now. But it's mostly because his friends really like these things. Yeah, and they are trying to like it as hard as possible. So I see this going on right now, and I know that, and I know, looking back, know that now of myself. I go to you first, Arthur Gordon. What was your high school musical cocoon? Um, primarily my dad, um, which was a lot of old country and golden oldies. So a lot of that stuff, you know, Frankie Valley, the Four Tops, uh, the Supremes. Um, Otis Redding, um, Marvin Gaye, like all that kind of stuff. Great taste, honestly. Yeah. And then the country, I mean, Hank, Johnny, Waylon, Willie, uh, you know, the whole run the game, Vern Gosden, Keith Whitley. And at, at the very least, some, some fucking outlaw country. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was, it was, look, credit where credit is due. You were in a cocoon, but that's a good cocoon. Yeah. And so my dad hated anything like post, like, 80s country so like i mean he loved alan jackson but like garth brooks was crap reba was crap like your dad hated garth brooks? yeah because he's a only, showman the only person on the planet earth yeah that's Apparently. wild but, yeah but he oh, was that, a showman that, right that, he wasn't that, a real country music star that's, that's right? pop country man yeah, yeah wow dang. No. he probably was into george Strait, and that was the end maybe a little i mean i'd Earl. say alan jackson was probably the last of those man. those guys my, uh, brooks my, and dunn no my granddad's yeah. kind of like that and even he likes garth a little yeah. bit that's wild. And so, yeah, it was, I mean, that was it for me. I mean, even, like I said earlier, growing up, I'm in a small town, so everybody's listening to country. So, I mean, I'm you know, aware of this kind of other stuff going on. Uh, and there's a lot of people listening to, like, ACDC or uh, that's really probably about it. Maybe Motley Crue. I don't know, like, 80s rocks, butt rock or, you know, whatever. Uh, Aerosmith is another I, one that would come up. I feel like butt rock is more into the, the late 90s, early 2000s. But, yeah, I, I feel like... Some of those groups that had good records earlier in their careers get unfairly lumped into butt rock a little yeah. bit because butt rock stations will play them from time to yeah. time. So, I mean, but yeah, my cocoon was really that that kind of outlaw country and golden oldies. And like that was the station we had tuned in the radio in the car. And that was the music we listened to at home. And so that that was really it for me. Okay, excellent, excellent. What was your cocoon like, Mr. Dalton Stewart? My cocoon is actually a little bit further back into like 8th and ninth grade. Um, I was fortunate enough that I did know some kids who had pretty good taste in music. Some of them I'm still friends with, including our own Frightful Femme, um, who who had, you know, burgeoning good taste. They will admit that they like some pretty terrible bands, too. But they also sure. were introducing me to things, you know, some of those early Weezer records, um, those early Killers records. Um, just uh, I 
I, I would I would go ahead and say she wants revenge. I'm going to give credit where credit is due. I think that first record's really strong. Um, it's you know it is what it is, but I think it's pretty good for what it is. Um, I was just a, a dumb teen boy and only wanted to listen to things that were fast and loud. Um, but when I was a teen, it was mu- when I was a young teen, it was much worse. I was real into Slipknot. Uh, uh, and disturbed when I was like fourteen. Ew. I did have the good fortune of having parents who had a pretty good taste in seventies rock. So there was a lot of Zeppelin and a lot of the Who in my life because uh, my my mom and dad. Um, my dad, a big Beatles fan, didn't tell me about them. Interesting. What an asshole! I know, right? I think he wanted me to find them on my own, uh, which is honestly pretty kind of. It's kind of a cool move. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. It's sometimes. kind of a cool move. Sometimes you got to find stuff on your own. Um, so yeah, my, my cocoon, uh, was really more from 14 to 15, uh, you know, late junior high, early high school. I, I was fortunate enough to have people who were giving me good mixes. Uh, I was just skipping the stuff that I, I didn't, you know, really, really like, um, and got stuck on the songs that all sounded the same. Uh, but yeah, that was my cocoon for me was, you know, anything, oh God, Lincoln Park, obviously, or Lincoln, sorry, um, R.A.P. Did you just try to combine Limp Biscuit and Lincoln Park? Park? Well, sometimes your mouth doesn't work very good. Whoops. <laughs> Sometimes you say things that are uh, double entendre when you try to make up for mushing your words together. Anyway, uh, so yes, that was obviously featured in heavy rotation as it was for literally every 14-year-old boy in the early 2000s, I think. I, I think you would be hard-pressed to find many uh, many white kids growing up in uh, middle America who didn't love Linkin Park uh, and didn't love Collision Course with Jay-Z. That was a big one. So yeah, that that was, it was not good. My yeah. cocoon was very bad and was like the worst of music in the early to mid 2000s. Yeah, fair. I, I will say I did not ever find myself falling into a, uh, a Nickelback uh, shaped hole. Uh, I did, however, like those Creed singles like everyone did in yeah. 2001. Here's the thing. Anybody who tells to talk shit on Creed, those singles were number one hits. Everybody was listening to those singles. Mm-hmm. And everybody liked them. Everybody yep. liked them. Not everybody bought the record. Everybody was listening so to those singles. So did Creed ruin Creed, or did all the Creed sound-alikes ruin Creed? Look, I think they were already bad. I think that's not that's kind of hard to dispute. Ditto for Nickelback. I think they all kind of sounded the same, because they were all trying to sound like Pearl Jam. Right. Who was, you know, trying to, well, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and give uh, Pearl Jam credit. They kind of have their own sound separate from the rest of the Seattle scene, I think. I think that's fair to say. But anyway, speaking of the Seattle scene and musical cocoons, Dustin... Tell us about that cocoon, buddy. It was—I mean, obviously, it was the Seattle scene uh, for the for a large part. So, now, uh, how did you get the Seattle scene in rural Oklahoma? Because that's kind of interesting to me. The cat, um, really, the is, cat was still picking up some of those those lesser known yeah, cuts right right away. I mean, you know, they were huge. That's Pearl, true. Pearl Jam's ten album was huge. Nirvana's Nevermind was huge. Yeah, yeah, Nevermind was a big one. I mean, and so I mean, it was it was automatic. And then the older Alice in Chains and that kind of stuff was coming in uh, right away. So I was hearing Man in the Box and seeing that video. And you know, I, it's, it's interesting that a little bit earlier, I, I spent some time living um, with my father instead of my grandparents. My father had access to MTV mm. on the local t- cable, and I found myself really going deep in the metal. Um, sort, sort of wormhole, and it was all the big sort of big three thrash. That, I mean, you mm-hmm. know, that was going on. So we're talking Anthrax, Megadeth, mm-hmm. uh, Metallica, and Slayer, right? And so I was hearing a lot of that, and I was really enjoying it. But I got sort of removed from it, and I just didn't have access any longer. And everybody knew Metallica's Black album or the yep. Metallica Metallic album, or whatever you want to call it. But that was sort of the end of that. And so, and it, it was just a thing that sort of happened when I was like eleven. 
But when I was uh, early teens, junior high, finding music on my own, it was grunge and what would be more broadly said to be alternative music, right? Yeah. So really liked Smashing Pumpkins a lot, was in heavy rotation with us and our sort of crowd there. And uh, we, we really liked the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And so it was like a combination Oof. of Chili Peppers and then whatever we could find out of Seattle grunge. Yeah, that's that's a pretty standard rotation. I yeah. feel like. And that was, to be fair, a lot of what my transition out of the, those really terrible bands we were talking about was slightly less terrible bands from the mid to late 90s getting music about 10 years too late yeah um, that, that was a little bit of what my transition out of uh having bad taste was in that er, late junior high early high school band was kind of listening to some of that same stuff until you know somebody was fortunate enough to have spent enough time on limewire that they found you know <laughs> early modest mouse records and you know some some more deep cut alt music that was coming out in the late 90s right. and early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting about this is I developed quickly a secondary cocoon. So this is junior high with just kid, the, just the boys in my class. This yeah. is what we listen yeah. to. Now, as um, in a small high school, you begin to form friendships with older kids, right? Yeah, so like Charlie. And so as I began to form uh, friendships with these older kids, their set of music was quite a bit older. And so we listened to a lot of the Beatles mm-hmm. and a lot of Led Zeppelin. And so that was sort of the other. So I had really? like the dual contention. Gotcha. I got really into Jimi Hendrix at that point as well. Yeah. And so, um, and I owned every single Hendrix album. Oh, I talked about Man of Gypsies on the show not very yeah, long yeah. ago. We and, talked about that in Almost Famous, I believe. Yeah, that's right. And so that all happened because of those guys. And okay. Because they were very much into the 70s, arena rock. Um, and also that sort of acoustic y, folky kind of. Sounds like you rock. were hanging out with some dope smokers, Dustin. Uh, you know what? No, not really. Um, they were, yeah, they were all music nerds and they really liked how um technical jimmy page was i was just trying to sound like an old dad but honestly they kind of caught me off guard yeah they they were they were totally like they were big sort of um perfect pitch you know kind of music nuts i kind of love that that's adorable and wholesome yeah so it was a strange thing weirdly i did get a mixtape once ever in my life from a girl (sighs) But it's it was a big like moment. Super religious. Ooh. It was super. Noise. Stephen Curtis Chapman. It was no. <laughs> it was a selection of Rich Mullins songs. I it almost was, said Rich Mullins. It, it was. It was two sides. Our of God is an awesome God. Rich, which was one of the songs yep. on there, and some deep cut dulcimer stuff. You know, because he's yeah. a pretty. I guess apparently yeah, world class level dulcimer playing. I don't know what bad dulcimer playing sounds like <laughs> because he's the only dulcimer player I've ever listened to. I'm gonna say the ultimate buzzkill is getting a mix from somebody you think is cute and finding out it is all religious music. It was all church music. Oh, man. Do kids... Kid, hey, hey, teens, um, <laughs> I can't imagine that you're in our demo. But if you are, how how you guys share mixes together? Is it just like making public Spotify playlists? Yeah, I was going to say, Cause putting that, the Spotify list together. I mean, because honestly, that's how me and Dr. Fiance do it. We just, yeah, I mean, we just have, you know, shared Spotify playlists, but... I'm really curious how the, how the teens are, are sharing music with each other these days, especially when they, you know, they want a neck and whatnot. Now, I want to ask another personal question before we get into some, and there's a deep dish analysis. Are we okay with this being a long show? Yeah, I mean, they've, they've been going long lately. I'm let's, fine with let's that. Let's go ahead and make this a long show because I want to ask the next question is, what was your moment? Well, so let's, 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 let's situate it chronologically in your life. What was your moment when you stopped caring about being cool and fitting in with your friends in your musical tastes? When you started liking what you liked because you liked it and you really didn't care if it fit with your friend group any longer, that moment. Oh God! Like four years ago, dude. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was towards the end of college. Okay, the same for me. Same yeah. for me. And the next part of that question is, what was the music that you got into as a result? I'm going to go to you first, Dalton. Well, I guess I mean, 
for me, the I stayed that musical cocoon that we were talking about pretty much throughout high school, and it was kind of finding stuff on my own, and at the same time, because you know, I I, I was uh, right at that time of deciding I didn't care about being cool. I was finding other friends that are you know were real friends and started sharing music with them, and it was plenty of stuff that we've talked about on the show before. It was um, sleigh bells. Um, uh, Run the Jewels, which, you know, God, I talk about all the time, uh, but other hip-hop that I hadn't really explored, uh, Kendrick, Kanye, I mean, stuff like that. Uh, getting into hip-hop, getting into, you know, I listened to License to Ill more times than I could count in high school, but then getting into the actually the good Beastie Boys records, uh, which kind of made me a, I wouldn't go as far as to say a music nerd, but to really start to have appreciation for production in hip-hop. Um, and like really deep cut samples and weird samples, uh, you know, finding Paul's Boutique and uh, Ill Communication, you know, those those middle Beastie Boys records. Uh, but then also spending some time listening to some alt stuff that I hadn't taken the time to really get into, only listening to singles that weren't really giving you a, a clear picture of why some of the stuff was good. Uh, that's all, yeah, 22 to 24 probably as I'm you know, more focused on trying to pay for college and not flunk out of college, and uh, your friendships become those of actual friendship and not necessity. All right, excellent. I like that very much. What was your moment, um, Arthur, and what was the music? Uh, it was probably the tail end, I'd say mid, maybe like junior, senior year, maybe right after senior year. Um, you know, those last couple of years of high school, I was really into, you know, had gotten into church, got real into church, was in the real into Christian music, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at some point in there, I mean, it, for me, it was always, and at that point, you know, it was like, oh, there was that moral question because it was like, you can't listen to secular music. Ugh. You know, that, that whole thing was there. But I was like, I was so drawn to hip hop. I was so drawn to Jay-Z and Outkast and yeah. Snoop and, and That's the Chronic right. 2001 oh, and yeah, I didn't even... Kanye. Yeah. Because, I mean, 2003, 2004, drop, uh, college dropout hits. Mm-hmm. And I got into Kanye in a big way. Um and so I'd, I'd say it was that, and, and especially against my earlier cocoon of, like, country and, you know, that kind of stuff. And Golden Oldies, I mean, hip-hop was really the thing. Ludacris and Eminem, like, those were big, big players uh, kind of coming out of high school for me. Like, that's what I listened to all the time was was rap. I mean, that's what I wanted to listen to. I, I, that's, I've, I'd forgot, I knew that we had this similarity, Arthur, but I'd kind of forgotten about it. And it is interesting the way that it's an exposure to music you haven't played around a lot with that really kind of makes the music wheels turn for you a little bit harder than they had previously. And I don't know what it was for you uh, that that hip-hop really hit you. For me, it was the idea of making a symphony of sound with no instruments just, like, always boggled my mind. Even yeah. you go back to God, Fear of a Black Planet was one of the first hip-hop records I really, really got into. And, like, a, a, that was one I've forgotten, the Public Enemy record. And especially... I got how it was done with, you know, Kanye records, computers. I got that. Yeah. But 80s hip-hop, I was still, I was like, wait, how did, huh? How how make so much music? I, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't understand it. And then again, lyrical density in hip-hop yeah. was really just like blew me away. Um, people in college introduced me to, to Wu-Tang and just a, a lot of, you know, the, the you know, the, still the heavy hitters, greatest of all time yeah. hip-hop records. Um, I'd forgotten that we'd share that similarity. What was it for you uh, that really kind of like about hip-hop that made you go, what have I been missing out on? I mean, probably, I mean, a lot of it just the, uh, that lyrical poetry and being able to put together mm-hmm. those kind of mm-hmm. uh, allusions, similes, metaphors, that kind of just like expression uh, liter- literarily. Uh, the music itself, the beats, like I, I love that. But also, guy, I mean, it would just blow my mind to hear somebody like Twista who would just 
yeah, oh, speed man. wrap something, and I'm like, yeah. how are you doing? Like, it would just blew my mind. I was so drawn and fascinated by something like that. And I think that's the first phase, right? Especially as white kids who get into hip-hop. It's like, this doesn't sound like anything that like my parents listen to. Yeah. And then you start to realize, holy shit, this is teaching me about something that I... This is teaching me about stuff that I haven't thought about yeah. at all. Like, I... Yeah. You know, you you haven't taken a, you know, a fucking social problems course or you yeah. know, whatever you want to... You know, whatever yeah. the college thing that, uh, you know, indoctrinates you into liberalism yeah. or, you know, whatever buzzwords you want to use... The real stuff, it's art. Art is what makes you think. Yeah. And, yeah, it, it's weird how you get into it in that capacity, and then you start listening to, really listening to lyrics and stuff, and you go, wait, what is? what are they talking about? Yeah. Oh, my God, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. The game. Oh, man, I forgot about the game. Yeah. Is he still around? I don't know. He's on that playlist that popped up over the weekend. I was, yeah, that early. Hater or Love It. Yeah. The oh, yeah. Dream and... Do you remember? Uh, I think it was him and Snoop. I forget who all was on there. It's a uh, oh my god, what is the name of that track? It, it was a uh, I don't even think it was on a record, but it was about uh, Bloods and Crips coming together. I don't know. It's it's a good track. It's I, that, that was it's, it's a it's a fun one. Dustin, what what's that look like for you when you start really diving into music without really thinking about uh, social clout? You know, I think I really wanted to like what I wanted to like, but I I was I was. I don't know if it was unusual for me as compared to anybody else, but I desperately wanted to fit in. And so my li- my love of metal was also combined. They had the 80s throwback thing on MTV. And I was listening. Uh, when they would, you know, when we watched this movie, I totally understand why they would never have heard of Bowie because people just yeah. would not have listened to Bowie. But I knew Bowie and New Order and Joy Division and The Cure and The Metal and I thought this stuff was amazing. And then I found out that gay boys liked it. Yeah. And it was not okay. And so I was – you know, there's a scene in the new Stephen King uh, It adaptation mm-hmm. where um, uh, Ben Hanscom has got a uh, wham po- I think. New Kids yeah. on the Block. New Kids on the Block. That's poster. what it is. That's right. Yeah. That's there Because there's a couple of jokes with, between him and um, Beverly, Beverly yeah. about how she's going to keep his secret yeah. that he likes new kids. Yeah. And so I was sort of closeted in, yeah. in that in that line. And, you know, I still had those old, you know, I had a couple of those old CDs, but I mean, you would you would hide it, you know, so people wouldn't see yeah. your yeah. stuff. Well, you know, and that's our again our friend Kirsten Thurkelson. I, you know, when she got me into the Killers, and even because you spend like fourteen, fifteen, uh, you know, when you grew up at the same time that I grew up, it's uh, um, oh my god, what is the name of that band? Holy shit. Dustin, keep talking for a second. I'm so okay. sorry. But, yeah, so I went all the way through high school. And then, you know, college was a Bible college context. And so I was very limited and sort of, you know, I would listen to, I still, I, I never really just sold out to that whole idea. You can't listen to that. I was like, that's balderdash. Um, that's the original Greek for that kind of um, horse hockey. Um, actually, the Greek is skubala, which means um, skubala. Uh, literally. Well, I, I'll just say Martin Luther translated it as Shison in his translation. Are you uh, serious? Yeah, it's that's, yeah. that's delightful. Uh, anyway, so it's all Scubalon to me. Uh, but moving on, I, I sort of, you know, sort of played around with it. And then I saw the number 23. Actually, this movie is actually formative for the story, and this is where the, the whole thing wraps back around. Okay. I heard David Sillian, Sylvian is back with, you know, from Asia doing this Age of the Band, not from the place. Yeah. Uh, Age of the Band doing this Nine Horses project. And I'm like, I'm going to find this. And I, I made a Pandora list. And I made that Pandora list, and it brought back The Cure and Joy Division, and then all kinds of other industrial, techno, metal sort of stuff combined. Nitzer Ebb, Nine Inch Nails, B-Born 
Benton, the Crew Shadows. Bands Stuff that, that if you were cool, you could have been listening to when if you were in high school. I were cool, but yeah. I wasn't. Well, and that's it was Fallout Boy, by the way. It was it was when you're 14. Yeah. Like, oh, that, that's girl rock. I don't listen to that. I don't yeah. listen to emo. That's that's yeah. girl music because you're a fucking idiot. Right. And then you start to realize, oh wait, no. Everybody has good music, and we should all be listening to each other's music all the yeah. time. And and weirdly, from that in that playlist, I found Leonard Cohen, whose Hallelujah song I'd known. But there was yeah. a lot more stuff going on. Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen. I got back into Bob Dylan and started actually paying attention to what was going on. And then as I was listening to Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan, Tom Waits reared his head, and it was like this just sudden like again the Pandora experience itself was this transformative moment. Where like there is so much music that is related to music I already like to discover out there and so i'm not one of those curated pandora people i'm one of those people who likes to plant a seed and see where it goes i like that too and it, you know credit where credit's due to things like uh pandora spotify like it's it's easy to 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 bag on them and their bad algorithms and they are very bad sometimes, sometimes. uh and you know they are cheating artists out of music money uh in ways that was not happening 20 years ago but it is broadening horizons in ways that are pretty cool uh, that was not happening a few generations back. So let's let's actually do our job and talk about a film. Yeah. Um, how do the characters in this film kind of represent that that musical coming out and coming into your own musically? But how do those things tend to overlap with you know not just musical taste but personality? How do we see that represented? What we've been talking about for the last you know twenty minutes? How do we see that represented in Perks? I see I see Perks as the cocoon. I I, I you know that conversation about the Smiths mm-hmm, and yeah. that you like the Smiths and the fact that they don't recognize the Bowie song because mm-hmm. Bowie just wouldn't have been a hit. Now the, the the truth of the matter is I don't know that there were many kids in the early nineties who would have liked the music that they liked. To be completely honest, well, you know, I'm going to give credit kids. where credit's due because they're living in Pittsburgh. They're living okay. in a much bigger yeah, I city. Say. I mean, you know, I I grew up in the city, but I still grew up in Oklahoma. You guys grew up in real, rural Oklahoma. I, we're getting stuff a little bit later. They're That's living on the true. coast. Yeah. They're living in a, a city that is, I wouldn't go, go as far as call it a music city, but it definitely has, you know, musical history for sure. sure. I mean, it's not, yeah, it's not Seattle. It's not Nashville. It's not New York, but it's, you know, it's still a big city with mu- thriving musical scenes. So I don't think it's that far out of the realm of possibility because, again, I, I knew people who had, like, deep-cut good taste in music because I lived in the city and that had music clubs. But nonetheless, it is still uh, of its own piece, right? Yeah. And it is very much what it is. Um, it is a cocoon that doesn't care about traditional tropes of masculinity. As we talked about all of our musical, they're heavily guitar-dude-driven musics yeah. um, that we talked about. And so there is a way in which, um, although the Smiths and some of these other bands are all male and fronted by man and, and that kind of thing, they do tend to be a little more, we'll say, queer. Um, they tend to be a little bit more um, androgynous. And as such, uh, it is it is a cocoon of sort of experience that is a bit more open than what we would, you know, because I think the music that we we all talked about was music that sort of did build barriers. Like, this is a canon. Yeah, and for sure. And these are musics that are a little more branching and reaching. Well, and I think that is what Perks does a really good job of portraying, is this is a friend group that has done a pretty good job, if not racially, at least... Uh, on, on a spectrum of sexuality and gender identity, built a group that is pretty inclusive, right? Uh, and people are being introduced to things that, while maybe a little pretentious, um, is you know pretty pretty welcoming and is trying to share ideas. And I had a little bit of that in high school being a theater kid, but I, I think that's what the 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 film nails so well is the ways in which 
having those inclusive uh, friend groups in terms of sexuality and gender identity do bring in music that will kind of shatter the walls of kind of gross masculine identity, which is obviously a thing we've been talking a lot about the last couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Patrick's um, depiction, you know, I think uh, is we have a really good uh, queer depiction in the film with Patrick. You know? Oh, yeah. It's complex and it's not um, it's not Mary Sue. No. Right. And it's it's interesting. It's not overly. I mean, it's it's tragic in the way that, you know, being uh, gay, especially in a certain time and place can mm-hmm. be tragic. I don't think it falls into that trap of tragedy. Uh, I was going to say porn, but I, I can't think of a better word. It's a tragedy porn that those types of stories often can. Obviously, there is a tragedy element yeah. with his story, but yeah. it doesn't go as sad as these stories Tend to and go. there's a bit of hope for him, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I do have to say, though, there is a bit of a tropiness there that, you know, there's two boys that are involved with one another. and one One's of the artsy kid. One, one's the football player. And, yeah. and, and the dad doesn't approve. And, yeah. and, and the dad beats him up. And, I, I, you know, the whole time that's going on. And it's, it's supposed to be a, a huge, emotionally impactful moment. I think it was. But my brain kept going back to Heather's and how I still love my dead gay son. And, yeah. and it, was, it was sort of weirdly like a chuckle weird. It's tropey. Yeah. yeah. It's tropey in a way that almost cuts the legs out from under how how well it works emotionally but it's tropey in a way that almost doesn't work but i i think chabosky screenplay and his direction does it with enough empathy that for me it still works and i i wouldn't begrudge anybody who it doesn't work for but I, i think for me it still manages to sell it despite the fact that it does kind of fall into some uh some queer tragedy traps that we often see in this this these kind of stories i don't know that it works for me until patrick tells the story okay when they're yeah. out driving around and he tells that the urban yeah, when they're I, doing did, the I, didn't, I didn't have that feeling in that moment either so yeah i think you're right well arthur that that brings me i think to a, a, a good point to segue to that's one of my favorite things about this film is the way in which it depicts when you tell people you care about about your baggage the way it yeah. shows it um that moment's a great one you know you, you've got that that friend who is kind of a funny person and has a hard time dropping the facade of jokes because if they do, they're going to have to show you how sad they are and the ways in which sometimes it's revealed to you as something that happened to somebody else. Or in the case of Emma Watson's character, sometimes it is very matter of fact. My first kiss was my dad's boss. Yeah. And the way in which this film goes about talking about people's trauma is really, really powerful. Uh, And I think it's, part of the strength of the film because it shows the different ways that different characters engage with the things that hurt them, yeah. the things that they're carrying with them. And uh, for me, that's one of the strengths of the film. And it does sort of deal with that aspect of the childhood amnesia, mm-hmm. right? I mean, oh, yeah. I think Charlie's got a legitimate amnesia, a blockage that's going on. Oh, for but, sure. But there's also going on with Emma Watson's character and with Patrick, there is this sense of, I don't think about it all the time, even though it is informing things that I'm doing and decisions I'm making all the time. It's it's so far out of my head that I don't realize how much those things are owning me. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, I, I, yeah. I, and, and as a person with you know, similar kinds of trauma in my own background, yeah. it, is, it is slightly a form of amnesia. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, this is you know, this is why people go to therapy, right? right. I mean, even if yeah. it's somebody like him, Watson's character, who is matter of fact about it, and again, it's not the first thing she tells people, but when she does share that trauma with Charlie, she's kind of matter of fact about it, and can't see how it's informing her her choices. Whereas Charlie has kind of created that you know that traumatic stress blocker, and sort of forgotten about part of his relationship with his aunt Helen, who was his favorite person, and he has forgotten that that is 
colored or has at least allowed himself to forget that it's colored by a, a pretty painful thing. Um, but you're right. I, I think it does a good way of engaging with the two types of trauma or two types of trauma amnesia, the, the ways in which you don't make the connection between how it informs your behavior and when you actively have forgotten something because your brain doesn't mm-hmm. want you to remember. And actively ignoring it. We also see this physical trauma and abuse with the sister, right? And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is another kind of element of this cycle that, that's really foreshadowing and also outlining the revelation with Charlie later in the film, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I learned doing some research that there's actually a whole cut storyline that they I think they filmed. It's definitely in the book, though. Part of what happens, I guess, is Charlie doesn't tell their mom and dad, but he tells uh, Paul Rudd's character. Mm. And Paul Rudd's character tells her parents. And it really damages uh, his and his sister's relationship mm. until that guy gets her pregnant. Well, there's and also he, an, yeah, an abortion line. And yeah, he takes her to get an abortion. And apparently, I, I, I'm interested in that storyline. I wish we got more of him and his sister's relationship. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're not going to get a lot from him and his brother uh, because he doesn't live at the home anymore. Mm-hmm. But I w- really would have liked more of the relationship between Charlie and his sister because obviously I can't even remember her name. I know. And that's, you know, I'm going to blame that on the film, even though it's probably my fault. Uh, but I think I would remember if we'd gotten more time with her. I don't remember it either, and I'm going to blame you as well. Thank you. Everyone blame me. I am a terrible person and uh, <laughs> should uh, do a better job of keeping the cast list in front of me while we're recording. <laughs> So that I can avoid awkward moments like this. But again, I, Arthur's right, though. that I, I, I think you're right. It does do a good job of informing things that we learn later in the film. There's another theme in the movie that I think is really important. It is the theme of friendship, specifically that loyal, that fierce loyalty to friendship. Touch my friends again and I'll blind you. Yeah. Which is an excellent line. It's a good line. And uh, the, it, it is so true the ways in which when you are a teen and also when you're a child but it, the ways in which those friendships in their immediacy and in their moment are the most important, vital, life-giving things in your life, right? And uh, for Charlie, I mean he's, he's gone two weeks without hanging out with his friends and I'm like, I mean, we've gone two weeks without hanging out yeah. together and I miss you guys. But you know, it's fine. I'll, I'll see you. Yeah, it's not. You're, we're, we're not calling like everybody and like begging to see each other. We do have a great group chat. We though. do. We and do. We have never had any awkward, uh, you know, relationship triangles. Fortunately, that's good. Yeah, which would be a bad idea. But yeah. I think you have a good point there, Dustin. Because you know, hopefully, if your development as an adult is going well, you get better at self-soothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get better at dealing with your shit. Um, hopefully, healthfully. Uh, hopefully you're going to therapy if you need to, or, uh, you know, at least have a good confidant that you can talk to about stuff. But, uh, in any, in any case, you get better at dealing with your general anxieties, your malaise, all of these things when you're a teen, man. Yeah. You gotta have those people. Uh, and, uh, it's weird how those relationships that seem so important at the time can very easily kind of fall apart. And that's one thing that I don't know that the film nails it does portray Sam and Charlie's relationship very much as like a, a, a very intense, very loving uh, relationship that is so supportive that it feels like an adult relationship at times. Mm-hmm. I don't know that any of us get there when we're 17. Um, you know, it'd be great if we all did. It really would be. Uh, I mean, I have a friend from high school. I was texting him today, mm-hmm. you know, and I, that I've kept up with. But I have – I mean, that's one. I've got two or three. Yeah. Uh, and again, I would say that my entire friend group are people that I, I relied on dearly oh then uh, yeah for my emotional health and they're all people i'm invested in i'd like to know what they're doing it's one of the only thing that ever makes me wish i had uh 
bothered to get on Facebook. It's yeah. it's the one thing that it I regret. Actually help with that? Yeah, probably not. Um, because everybody goes off and does their own thing. But when you're 17, man, like those those relationships sustain you. Like mm-hmm. they they really can be powerful. Uh, I again, I had that ex- misfit, Island Misfit Toys experience being a theater kid uh-huh. uh, in a big way. It was the first time that I, I felt like I could be weird and nobody would be mean to yeah. me for it. Yeah. But I do think it does play into something that is important, that real friendship does require a, a fierce kind of loyalty, mm, right? Yeah. And, and, and so that is a virtue, I think, that the film upholds well. Mm. Um, just, again, now, the ways in which it sometimes misplaced when you're in high school because you're sometimes very loyal to people who are not good for you. You, you love the love you think you deserve. Right, yeah. embrace the love you think you deserve. I think is the line. Uh, yeah. We we accept the love that we think we accept. deserve. Yeah, yeah, which is a great line. Yeah, good line. Uh, Chabosky original. That's not from anything else. That is a Stephen Chabosky original. Great mm-hmm. line, man. A uh, very succinct uh, summation of human experience. Honestly, but uh, that being said, I mean the the real test of real friendship is always loyalty. Is is when it's difficult, when it's tough, when you might get beat up in a fight. You know. Now, what do we think about that, speaking of? You know, we, we've talked a lot about, you know, how sensitive this film is, how it eschews traditional modes of masculinity. The way Charlie buys his way back into this friend group is dishing out an ass-whooping. Mm-hmm. That's kind of an interesting choice for this film to make. What, what do you guys think about that? Well, I think w- my first thought is simply that it is a, a re- restatement of my commitment to you all as friends, and it's a way that sort of... Physically demonstrates that, but I also think that the film has within it this sort of underlying pacifism that's always going on, right? Mm-hmm. And to also say that you know pacifism as a general practice is fine, but it cannot ever devolve into passiveism yeah. to allow yeah. the bad to go down without doing what needs to be done. You know, I I have, I have great pacifist tendencies in me, but if I saw a man dragging his wife by the hair in the front yard in my next door, I'm yeah. stopping him. And it, w- with whatever it takes, you know, and uh, that does mean picking up a two by four. I will do it, right? And I don't know if that's the right thing, but it's certainly the wrong thing to keep letting it happen. Yeah, it's certainly the wrong thing to let those guys just wail on Patrick, and uh, you know, and and the threat, you know, touch my friends again and I'll blind you. That's a good bluff. Yeah, it's a good bluff. Yeah. Nobody's gonna get blinded. <laughs> Earth, Earth, what about you? Does it work for you? I think so. I, I I think, and especially the way they play it, and with the cutout, and we don't really know what happens, and we don't get the hero's welcome right away. He's he's not sure how he's going to be. He thinks they're still going to hate him because they're going to be afraid of him for what he's done. That's why it works for me. Yeah, uh, because it, it's tied to his trauma, right? He has yeah. a black. He had full on had a blackout. Yeah, and comes to and is like, uh, "What did I do?" Everybody's looking at me like they're scared. Yeah, and that's for me. It even ha- it has that moment of traditional you know, uh, violent, toxic masculinity, but it is rooted in pain and trauma and emotional truth. And that's, for me, why I think the film gets to kind of have its cake and eat it, too, in that moment. Um, I was just curious what your guys' thoughts were on that, because it is, it's a big moment in the movie. So I, I was just curious, you know, how it played for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, 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 think, I think it works, for sure. Uh, lastly, let's just talk about trauma. Um, and I think this kind of gets us to that place where Charlie is dealing with the trauma of being molested by his aunt, who was his favorite aunt because they were very close 
um, but also predicated on the fact that there was sexual abuse that was going on. He has blocked that severe depression, also dealing with this issue of his uh, best friend from middle school having committed suicide the summer prior Mm -hmm. and working through it. Um, I I say that because we were being asked earlier the differences and uh, sort of this taxonomical question about what makes it a high school movie, what makes it a coming-of-age movie. Um, And so I want to come back to that original question that Arthur posed when we started with Stand By Me, which was, does this movie fit the bill? Uh, I'll go ahead and begin, and then I want to hear what you guys have to say. For me, this is what I talk about for a uh, coming-of-age film to a T, because it is about going into the forest and finding the witch and then finding a way to best her and find your way back out. Um, that's that's precisely what ends up happening here, is that the trauma is the ghost that's living inside of Charlie, and until he exercises that ghost, he'll never be free. And it's not like a complete exorcism in which you don't remember anything, but it is a, a thing in which by not remembering, that's how it held him. And so by finally remembering, he's able to move on and go on. Uh, which is powerful. So for me, in my sort of taxonomy of the coming-of-age movie, it does that. A high school movie is simply a movie that's about cool. That's about, you know, it could be about any number of things that a person does in high school. And, of course, there's usually like a graduation moment or whatever. But uh, a high school movie is, you know, she's all that. You know, it's it's just... Heathers. Heathers. Heathers yeah. isn't a coming of age film. It's, no, a, it's, it's a good film. It's about a lot of things. But it's not no. a coming of age film. It's no, a high it's, school it's movie. It's a high school movie. Yeah. yeah. So Arthur, um, your definition again, and uh, does this movie fit? And it, what distinction would you make between the high school movie and the coming of age film? As far as coming of age, I, 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 I think you know, a lot of similar terms to you. I think I think there has to be that kind of something of an adventure or excursion or what have you, whether it's physical or just emotional or how you know how are the plays and there's some ideology. Uh, challenging and changing, and um, I, I, I think for the most part, this this checks those boxes. Um, but I don't know that it really happens until that third act. I, I, it feels a lot like just a high school movie until we get to that third act, uh, and, and all those emotional uh, pieces fall into play, and we really get that turn. Um, and so. I think, yeah, I, I think we can call it a coming-of-age film. I, I, I think the stuff that Charlie deals with and, and wrestles with is, um, uh, you know, certainly uh, a growing up amount of grief and pain and, and something he has to overcome to go on. Um, and so I, I think that works. And, yeah, um, I, I think if we don't get that emotional turn, it just does become just a high school movie, you know, and, and we may revisit this in a couple of weeks, that idea of the high school film. Um, but I, I think a high school film is just easy. A would probably be one. Yeah. It's just taking place in, in high school with high school characters, but there's not uh, maybe larger world valued stakes at, at play. If that makes sense. Yeah. It totally makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that a lot. What about you, Dalton? What's your definition again? And uh, how does this film fit? And again, the difference between the high school and the coming of age. Yeah, my, my definition again, just to remind everybody, was d- does it hit that Werner Herzog aesthetic, tr- aesthetic truth thing, right? Does it, you know, even if it's not literally true, is it emotionally true? Does it does it nail being a kid and what that means? And I think this does a great job. And as Arthur mentioned, it really does come in the third act. Uh, upon rewatch, I, I remembered more of the the plot than I expected to as the film was unfolding. I was I started remembering things about ten minutes in. I started to kind of remember to put all the dots together. And I think the film does a really good job uh, on rewatch of showing where it's going. I, I think it, it 
when I first watched it, I was a little annoyed. I was like, well, that's a really traumatic thing to pull out in the third act and not leave me a lot of time to deal with. But it tells it's you. There. It's there. Yeah. It's there the whole movie. Yep. It. I mean, it. Wow. It, it's, yeah. it's frankly shocking to me on the rewatch that I didn't figure out where the film was going. Yeah. Because it really does let you know what's going on right on the surface. Uh, especially scenes where, you know, Charlie is kind of acknowledging to Sam uh, that he's got the same pain that she's got and, you know, stuff like that. Or just the ways in which the flashbacks to his aunt are depicted. All, all sorts of things. It tells you where it's going. Uh, and it's the third act. It's the final lines that Charlie has. That monologue about being in high school, I think, is really what makes it a coming-of-age film. Because he, you know, is it a little on the nose? Yeah, but sometimes, fuck it, stories have to have a moment that is on the nose because he draws that through line Chabosky screenplay from adolescence to adulthood and says, this is it, man. Like when you're 16 going 17, you're going to, this is the most important time to you. Even if the adults can't realize it. And it's literally just at the end becomes a film about, Hey, all the stuff that you're carrying with you as an adult, you were carrying with you when you were 16. Mm -hmm. You're still the same person. You're just hopefully a little bit better at dealing with it. So, you know, don't roast the youth so hard because they're carrying some stuff that you can't possibly understand unless you can take the time to remember what it was like. Uh, because, you know, trauma doesn't care how old you are, man. Even if you don't experience trauma until later in life, you're still dealing with the fallout of everybody else's trauma when you're 16, all the adults around you and all the stuff that they're carrying. Uh, and I think that's the moment where it really does a great job of yeah, maybe they talk a little too cool. Yeah, maybe these kids... How are these kids this into Rocky Horror? These kids are too artsy. These kids seem like more like college kids. Who gives a shit? Mm -hmm. These kids are so well-sketched, so well-performed, so well-written that they do a great job of drawing that through line of... The, the world becomes high school a little bit because we're all everybody's people, including 16-year-olds, even when they're being annoying. Right. Um, and I, I think that's the moment where the, the film gets that moment of really, really wonderful truth, even if it's all not, you know, literally true. I think that's uh, totally accurate. Yeah, I, I'm all for that. Excellent, guys. Well, I think we've had a really, really solid conversation about the perks of being a wallflower. We come now to the point of the show. We must render a verdict, though, regarding this shelf or trash, and then our else's or instead's. I go to you first, Arthur. What do you say? Shelf, trash, else, or instead? Shelf, uh, I, I yeah, uh, rewatching it reminded me of why I, I loved it so much the first time when I saw it in theaters, and so I, I think it's definitely a shelfable coming of age film. I think it's uh, really one of the the top of the line. Um, else, I think you should watch a couple of other movies that come out right around the same time, kind of dealing with some of those heavier issues. And Dalton mentioned one of them, I, I believe it was last week or two weeks ago. Uh, but the Spectacular Now, I think, is one uh, deals with a lot of those heavy hitting. Uh, issues that don't always get tackled uh, in these kind of films, but I think it, it has a good grasp on uh, youth and, and issues and sexuality and, and substance abuse and those kinds of kind of things we tend to ignore when we think of teenagers because we don't want to accept that those are issues that they may be dealing with. Um, another one I would say is Kings of Summer. I think that's another great one that would pair well with here. It's a little ser more serious, a little heavier than some of the other coming-of-age stuff that came out around that time. Uh, and finally... I, I'd say uh, Gerald's Game. Um, oh, wow. Did okay. I take your pick? Yeah, you took Spectacular Now and Gerald's Game. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's all right. You want me to rewind and give you some more? No, it's okay. Okay, I'm sorry. No, it's good. I, I picked those two. Good job. Okay. Wow. <laughs> those are my... Those are interesting picks. Yeah. 
All right, what's your picks, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Yeah, it's, I'm going to say shelf as well. Um, Patrick at one point says, my life has become an after-school special. And yes, this movie feels like an after-school special sometimes because it does hit all of these topics. But it does so in a way that is not to... Yeah, you know what? Charlie gets high at a party. He, he eats some weed. And you know what happens later? He drops ass at a New Year's party and passes out in the snow and has to go to the hospital. And it kind of glasses over those things because, you know what, those are not the big moments of your life. The big moments of your life are the moment in the truck driving with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, your best friend and uh, his stepsister, um, who is probably the coolest person you've ever met, and being with those two people that you care about, and finally hearing that song on the radio uh, or on a mixtape after everybody's figured out what it is. Those are the big moments, and I think those are the big moments in the film, right? When you, you reveal your, your inner heart and your inner life to somebody – this film does a really good job of doing that. And, man, I hope the teens are watching it because uh, I, I, I knew people in high school that were reading this book, and uh, I totally get why they were now. I wish I had read it. Uh, I wish this movie had been out when I was 16 because yeah. I think it's that good. I think it does a really good job of talking about being a teen in a realistic way that doesn't feel preachy. Um, and also, you know, check some boxes on some topics that need to be covered, even if, you know, maybe it feels a little after school, especially sometimes. Who cares? It's honest. It's emotionally honest. And that's more important than anything when it comes to cinema, if, if you ask me. So it's going on the shelf. What would I recommend you pair with it? I'm going to say let's get some other performances from these really great actors. Uh, first up, I am going to say David Ayer's Fury, which is a pretty standard action movie with not a whole lot going on. But it's got a great Logan Lerman performance. Uh, kind of his breakout into uh, adult roles. Uh, he hasn't gotten a lot of work lately, unfortunately. Um, he got he had indignation a couple of years ago, which I heard really good things about. But uh, Logan Lerman's performance in Fury just uh, a year after Perks of Being a Wallflower is really, really good. Uh, and that film says some really interesting things about masculinity, sometimes on accident. Sometimes it's just how do we write masculine archetypes in war movies. Uh, sometimes it's only interesting because of what it shouldn't be doing that it does. But uh, I think it does interesting things, and Logan Lerman's great in it. Um, as I alluded to earlier in the show, uh, we need to talk about Kevin, the Ezra Miller uh, film from just the year before Perks of Being a Wallflower. Man, what a haunting and horrifying performance he gives in that movie, and every scene he's got with Tilda Swinton is a master class in acting, and the fact that he is able to hold his own with Tilda Swinton, who is literally the best actor of her generation. I, I mean, top five, probably. I mean, I think of everybody that's Tilda Swinton's age that's still working. She's as good as them, period. And the fact that Ezra Miller is able to hold his own is really great. And again, John C. Riley in probably one of his best dramatic turns. I mean, it's it's a great film. Uh, lastly, TV series. Uh, Mae Whitman doesn't get the film work that I think she should, um, and that's a damn shame. But she is fantastic in the NBC series Parenthood, uh, based on the Ron Howard movie from the 90s. I think 90 to be specific. Um, she's really great in that. I never did finish Parenthood, but I, I think Mae Whitman is really, really fantastic in it. Um, she gets to do all that, you know, teen drama heavy lifting uh, that, you know, she <laughs> she gets to kind of do in this film. But uh, I, I really like that show quite a bit. Um, and unless I'm mistaken, it is... Uh, nope, never mind. I'm going to go ahead and uh, move on and just say that is what I'm going to recommend for her. And uh, those are my pairings for Perks of Being a Wallflower. I am going to say Shelf and everything you guys said. And just simply leave it at that because you yeah. stole everything I was possibly going to say. Wait, w- were there any? Was there a single else film that didn't get stolen? No, my three were Gerald's Game, uh, Spectacular Now, and we need to talk about Kevin. Damn, sorry no. about that. Wow. So man, hey, you know what? Sometimes 
there are some films that are very clear parallels that yeah. are kind of mandatory uh, pairing. I guess you could watch 13 Reasons Why, the Netflix series, which is pretty good. Is I mean, it? Yeah, I like I've that. heard some... I saw the first season and I thought it was pretty good. I, I've, I've... I mean, it's, I mean, it's like it's not the first thing I thought of recommending, Look, so I mean, that's okay. that's how far down the echelon it goes. But... I haven't watched it, but I read some interesting think pieces about uh, its depictions of teen suicide and uh, and sexual assault. That, it uh, may have some problems. I mean, yeah. I think it's probably fair, but I, yeah. I mean, just, just sort of thinking through being a teen again, I mean, that's what this movie does. And it does that, so it'd be a pair to be in a world without think pieces. Um, can you even imagine it? Uh, no, no, it's kind of hard to consume stuff without them sometimes. It feels like, well, it's how I'm gonna make a living, so I need it. Yeah, no, it's uh, literally what we do for fun. So, well, there you go, dear listener. That's our thoughts on the perks of being a wallflower, and we are very perky after all of that and have had a good time. I'm so perky, I think I'll do one more show. Really. You're on board with another show? Wow, well, he he didn't even like resign himself to no, it. He seems excited. He's, about yeah, it. I know. I'm gonna do one more. Yeah, we may have won him over finally. Well, normally we'd be wrapping up the marathon about now. I think this is what number five in this uh, ongoing series. Four or five? Yeah. Is this five? Yeah, Boys in the Hood was four. This is five, but we're just gonna next keep going. Is, um, number next. Yes, next is number <laughs> next, and then we'll do number last. Um, but we just that was the '90s. We still got to do the odds. We still got to talk about life in rural Texas. We still got to talk about some misfits who are trying to fit in. Uh, and we're going to lace up. Uh, we're going to get out there, hit some bodies, and we're going to talk about Whip It. I'm so excited. I've I never seen, seen this movie. This so movie is great, and I haven't seen it about, well, since it came out in theaters. Like Perks, which was my first viewing, this will be another first viewing. So I'm. You'll have a lot of good contenders at the end of the year when we do our uh, Shelby Awards for yeah. uh, first time watches. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I will have a lot, yeah. So well, there you go, dear listener. We're going to keep doing this thing that we're doing, and uh, we encourage you to watch this movie, watch Whip It, watch any movie, and have a conversation with somebody you care about. If Perks the Wallfire teaches you anything, it's having those deep conversations with people that you love and that love you back. I mean, it's important, and the movies is a great catalyst for that. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Trash Genre Cast. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a product of Good Trash Media. For more info on all things Good Trash, head on over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro music, as always, is an original composition by friend of the show Aaron Rodgers. And our outro music this week is, obviously, Heroes by David Bowie. What else would we have picked? Just for one day